I appreciate that um, little talk through from Pat in, into what we're doing, and it's probably going to set a dangerous precedent, but I'm going to go off, off script uh, right from the beginning. Um, but I, from a, a few conversations with people about, you know, hey, we're, we're kind of revamping the evening service, we're, we're doing something different to what we've done previously, there, there's actually probably a lot of unknowns in your mind going on. It's like, oh, is, is the stage going to get foggier? Or are the lights, are we going to have like a brighter spectrum of, of colours or, you know, are the seats going to recline or, or whatever it is? Uh, no. <laughs> um, we're essentially like placing the Bible a bit more centrally in, in what we're doing. Um, but I want to just articulate that carefully um, because, as Pat mentioned, it, it's been a long journey for me uh, to get into ministry. Um, it's a bit of a surreal moment that, you know, um, I'm, I'm here now because uh, it was probably just over 14 years ago that God sort of gave me a, a sense that he would uh, call me to be a pastor one day. Um, and that 14-year journey has included Bible college at the start and life since then. And God in his own timing uh, has decided that, you know, th there's a fuller process involved. Yes, the Bible is, is a very important part of, of that, you know, formative um, space, but at the same time, there's a lot more to it. You've got to be much more rounded as a Christian. And so, yes, we're going to be placing the Bible a bit more centrally in what we do here in the evening, but we want to articulate that there is a spirit and truth element to how we interact with the Bible, which I'm hoping is going to become infectious. And I'm hoping that it's not going to be like a, you know, stale old, uh, you know, expositional, let's pride ourselves on on how long we can spend in one verse, um, let's, you know, oh, we've, we've finally done uh, the book of John five years later and, and let's uh, move on. It's not going to be that kind of thing. Um, it's going to look a little bit like that to, to, to kind of the, the naked eye, but uh, when you're here and when you're experiencing it, I, I trust that you'll understand actually the living word of God as we seek to um, apply it uh, to our lives. Um, so as I said, it's, it's a very surreal moment um, being... Uh, here in this position, and, and uh, Beck and I feel just incredibly privileged to have been called uh, in this place. Um, and so, if, if it's all right with you, I wanted to share maybe a, a bit of my heart about um, being a, stepping into this role and, and being a pastor here at, at Kenmore, um, because in one sense, there's absolutely no pressure on me. Um, there's no pressure on me to succeed or do anything or, or grow anything, and you're all going, oh, how can you say that? Like, I wish I could say that when I go to my job. Um, but what we're here to do is to grow the kingdom of God, and Jesus does that. God does that. And so if any of us were to take that burden on ourselves, it was, it's just going to result in burnout. Uh, and so there's absolutely no pressure to do that. All that I'm called to do here is to bless the Lord, to serve him, to be obedient to what uh, he's asked me uh, to do. But at the same time, I, I don't take the opportunity lightly. Um, because uh, we know that pastoring is a position of leadership and Jesus modelled and, and, and totally shifted the, the paradigm on leadership that is actually about uh, service um, and probably more descriptively, it's about servanthood. And Paul sort of expands on that idea saying that, you know, leading is about getting underneath the people that you are leading, lifting them up, encouraging them, supporting them. He says in Philippians, you know, let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others. Let each of you consider others as more important than yourselves. Uh, by the way, that's written to all of us, not just pastors, um, but it's very relevant in, in this space. 
So my heart, uh, I think, is, is two things, and that's developed over this kind of 14-year period. And it's, it's fascinating to see that there's a very kind of biblical precedent for, hey, this is the direction, but it takes a long time to flesh out who you need to be in order to step into that. Um, and so the first thing that is, is on my heart is uh, the Bible, is the Word of God. Uh, and uh, keeping that essential, it's, it's played a significant role in my journey as a, as a Christian. Uh, and I'll talk into that a bit more in a moment. Um, and then secondly, it's people. And that's really strongly part of the DNA of this church, that people matter. And so what we do is, is geared towards people. You know, people are important to Jesus. Therefore, people are important to us. Um, and so we're here to, to, to take care of people, to make sure that every single one of you feels loved, feels respected, feels like you have a place to belong and is growing. Not every one of us has to have a perfect story, but every one of us has the opportunity to grow through whatever it is that we're doing. And so my sincere uh, desire is that being in this role would, would help me to uh, facilitate that uh, for you. And secondly, uh, or, or firstly, I guess, that the, the Bible's been uh, central for me. Uh, like many of us who've grown up in uh, Christian church, I've read the Bible my whole life and uh, I've had some key moments where it has really come alive to me. Um, and I'm not sure if you're the same. I'm not sure if you can think about a moment where you've, you've read a scripture or, or something's just, you know, there's, there's just been a penny drop moment. And, and I can tell you, I can point to a few moments in my life where I've literally just felt myself being transformed. I, I've just read and suddenly a truth, I just know I'm different as a result of hearing that truth. And so the, the, the thing for me is, is that, the Bible is more than just a book. It's more than just a text. We look at, um, uh, you know, Hebrews, I, I believe it's 3.16. Uh, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to separate to the divisions of soul and spirit, joint and flesh, bone and marrow, able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart of man. And it's true what they say that when you pick up any book, you can read it, but when you pick up the Bible, it reads you. And it's because this Bible is... A, a living thing. And, you know, I had the privilege of, of going a bit deeper with, with theological study and, and then got the kind of itch to do that a bit more and, and then interacted through, um, you know, studying original languages. And, and I love that stuff. Um, and I'm not going to unload all of this unnecessary academics on you because I've also come to realize that not everyone's geared that way. Um, but rest assured that I'm, I'm doing that anyway. Um, and you're hopefully going to get the, the fruit of that without being bored by the academics. I, I know like maybe two or three people that I can have a nerdy conversation with uh, to scratch that itch, but it's, it's, it's not a, a desire of mine to make this, make this platform that uh, context. Um, so where am I going? We are feeding into what the evening services are going to look like. Um, we are going to change to an expositional style. If you've heard that word before, or exegetical style, uh, you may not have heard the word uh, exegesis. Uh, you can think of it as extra Jesus if you want. That's good enough. But basically, the style is walking verse by verse through the scriptures and just seeing what they say. And this style of preaching has a long uh, history. The Jewish people do it, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, uh, in around the time of Jesus, that was their thing. They would take the Bible or the Hebrew Scriptures, they would open them up and they would have a set reading for that day and then they would work from uh, that passage. And there are lots of different styles of preaching and all of them have a, a, the rightful place, right, because God works through all of them. You've got 
um, you know, topical messages which say, hey, let's look at this topic which is relevant to us and let's see what the Bible says about it, and that's important. There's also uh, your sermon series where you take a particular big broad idea or, or concept or this is what God's doing with us and, and you look over a period of time at, you know, how does the Bible talk about this? And that's what we end up doing mostly here at Kenmore and that absolutely meets um, people's need. Uh, and I just think that there is an important kind of maybe formational aspect that we're hoping to generate with moving to a, an expositional uh, preaching style. And that is that uh, we start with the Bible, right? We, we remove all of our agendas. We remove all of our expectations. Even the answers that we might think we're looking for, we say, well, look, God, you do what you want to do. It's not about coming with expectations. It's about coming expectant that God is going to do something. And I think that there's something really beautiful about the, the devotional aspect of that, where we get to the point where we say, you know what, God, wherever you are, that's where I want to be. I want to come to you. And God does that the other way around, right? And that's incredible. That's wonderful. God sees our need. God comes to us and meets our need. But I think that there's a really uh, significant aspect of that devotion that says, okay, well, God, I'm not perfect. I'm still broken, but I'm coming to you wherever you are. So that's the attitude that we're looking at kind of developing through this, uh, through this style and through what we're actually doing here. Now, to, to balance that, because we've always got to look at this, where does this fit on this spirit and truth spectrum? And I had this conversation with, with a lot of different people, and it's everyone believes that they're spirit and truth. Everyone believes that what they're doing is, is spirit and truth, but... Uh, the fact is the middle is a very difficult place to be. And so when we think about the word of God, this is God's revealed word over the course of history, and it is closed, right? It is Genesis to Revelation. There's no books to be added onto the end. There's no books to be placed beforehand. There's nothing for us to insert in the middle. It is full and complete and total in terms of God's revelation to mankind. It is the revelation that he's given to us, you know, to eternally do, do what it needs to do. But at the same time, it is God's word moment by moment because it's more than just a text. It is a living thing. It is a living thing. And God wants to apply that truth to us in this moment, in this context. And so, yes, it's an expositional style, but you don't get all the way through the book of Acts and then go, all right, tick that off, put it on the shelf, we've done that, we don't need to go back to Acts Let's go on to the next one. Or like you open a passage in your devotions, you go, oh, I've read this one before. I know what it means. I don't need to read it again. That's not how God's word works. Because Holy Spirit is involved in that process when you open the word and actually God is applying what he wants to say to your life in that moment, in that time. You don't have to go very far to realize that your interpretation is actually not necessarily that relevant for for somebody else. So we need and we need to be able to trust the Holy Spirit to apply this to us day by day, moment by moment. So is, is that okay? That's, that's where we're going. That's what we are wanting to do here is, is to come and we start with Scripture. We open it up and we just say, God, what do you want to do? What do you want to say? We are going to be going through a series in Acts and um, I'll give, Liam will be kicking that off for us next week, and I'm really excited for what he's going to, to bring. I'll leave all of the nitty-gritty introduction stuff to him, but to give you a, a very small amount of context, uh, the books of Luke and Acts were both written by the same person. His name was Acts. 
No, his name was Luke. Um, it's a two-part series, and it's written to uh, this guy called uh, Theophilus. And so we need to read it as kind of one work, even though it appears in two volumes. And so tonight, we are going to be having a look at the very first ever Christian expositional or exegetical, there's, there's your $2 word for tonight, right, exegesis. Uh, we're going to look at the very first Christian expositional sermon. And uh, that was a little brain teaser that I put to the other staff in the, uh, in the staff room, and we all wrestled with our ideas for that. But uh, I'm right because I came up with the idea. So um, it's from Luke 24. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to open it there, Luke 24. If you've got it on your, on your phone, open it up. I've got the NIV on the screen, and I've got the NIV in my hand um, because it's the most understandable version. Um, and I, I believe that the point is to be understood. There are lots of translations which are more accurate, more word for word, uh, and that's great, and I love those, and I use those to study. ESV is, is excellent as well. Um, but, you know, I think God's heart is that people understand what he wants to say. Um, so that, that's a very simple read. We don't need to overthink it. <laughs> I'm just giving you a bit of context here, um, going from the NIV. So Luke chapter 24, and we're starting at verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles, that is 11 kilometers from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked to them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? So it starts with now that same day. What day is that talking about? It's talking about Easter Sunday. That morning, Jesus has risen from the grave. The tomb is empty. The, the women have gone and found that nobody's there. The angels appeared to them. They've run back and they've said, guys, an angel told us that Jesus has resurrected. And then the, the disciples go and they find and they confirm everything that women have said. And yet these two men are walking along, talking about uh, all of the things that have happened, which is like the three days, pretty big three days, if you were living in Jerusalem at that time. Jesus was killed, and uh, then now suddenly there's this confusion about, okay, well, there's an empty tomb. What does that even mean? Now, Jesus himself comes alongside them, and they are kept from recognizing him. Now, this passage actually has, uh, it, it's built on this establishment of, of dramatic irony. Uh, and if, if you remember back to grade 10, uh, which for me was a couple of months ago, um, I actually had to repeat grade 10 three times um, over 15 years. Uh, that, that's a joke. I taught it three times as a teacher. Anyway. I, I repeated grade 9 five times, if, if you want to know. Um, grade 9 English, that is. Now, uh, they, there's this dramatic irony where we, we know who the characters are, right? We know that Jesus has rose from the dead. We know that these disciples are kind of oblivious. We know something they don't know. Jesus comes alongside them. And it's, it's like an episode of Undercover Boss, if you've seen that show, 
where like the, the head CEO like gets dressed up in a wig and some glasses and he like walks on and goes, like, what are you guys doing today? What do you think about that CEO guy? What a jerk. And just kind of gets a feel for, for what things are on the ground. And I can't help but just almost find it amusing in Jesus, like how he's behaving in this situation. Anyway, we'll, we'll see it unfold as we go. Why is it that they didn't recognize him? It says they were kept from recognizing him. And a more literal translation here would be that their eyes were held back from recognizing him. And some people try and offer some explanations for that, but I think that the only plausible one is that God himself has veiled their recognition of who Jesus is in that moment. And that's a very interesting idea, that God himself would choose not to reveal the presence of Jesus with them at that moment. You see, God stewards the process of our learning so that we are ready for the truth when it comes. Is there anything in your life where you just don't understand what's going on, where it's confusing to you, where perhaps it's causing you to question if God is at work or what God might be doing? There's this cloud around what's going on. And and let me give you a logic chain here. This first statement is true. If God chose to, he could download ultimate truth and clarity and revelation to you right now. You could come to a, a moment of perfect understanding of everything that's around you and everything that's going on. That's true. God could do that. And he does sometimes, right? And we're open and expectant that if God wanted to do that, he can. And that's exciting. But often he chooses not to which is the second step in this logic chain. If it doesn't happen, God has chosen not to. Why? Well, we believe, we know from the rest of Scripture that God is a good God, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. He's not, you know, some uh, big kid in the sky with a giant magnifying glass trying to burn ants. He's a good God. He loves us. And therefore, we use that understanding of Scripture to interpret our circumstances and go, well, whatever God is doing here is good which means that if God is choosing not to give me perfect clarity in this situation, there is some benefit to not knowing. Can I say that again? There is is some benefit to you not knowing and not fully understanding what's going on at the moment. You know, you might think, why did that relationship not work out? Or why did I not get that job? Or why did I get fired from that job? Or why did I, you know, get sideswiped in the car park of a Bunnings and spend five months sorting it out with an insurance agency who then now doesn't want to insure me. Right? Why does that happen? I'm not, I'm not bitter about that at all. It's God has something for you to learn in that process of not knowing. All right? And he's stewarding you for the moment where actually clarity is given to you. And we see later on in the passage that suddenly it's, it's at the breaking of bread where Jesus kind of reenacts the communion with them where it's like, oh, penny drop. And yes, there was confusion. There was unknown back. But then they look back at that moment and they go, actually, Jesus was right there the whole time. And it's true for whatever you're going through at the moment. You might not have perfect clarity, but Jesus is walking there alongside you, even if your eyes are veiled from seeing it right at this moment. And the moment when you do come to see it, man, it's so good. It's so good. And it feels a little bit like, I mean, this is a very easy story for me to grab, right? Because it's just 
just happened. But it's been a long story for us in, in walking in, in journeying into ministry. And there's been a lot of times along the way where we've been like, why not this? Or why this? Or why not this? And suddenly we're here today and it's like, oh, clarity. Yeah, now it makes sense. And I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. Because God is good and God is in charge of that process. So what is it that we need to learn? What do we need to learn in the meantime? And I think that we need to learn to do two things. The first is to listen, and the second is to trust. Because God is interested in faith. And if we can learn to listen to what he's saying, to quiet ourselves, and to hear from him, which is what we're doing by opening the Scriptures, and we can learn to trust that whatever he's doing is good, that's the faith that God is after. All right, moving on. Where did we get to? We got to verse 17. Jesus asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? What things? Jesus asked. I mean, are you not amused by that as well? Like his Jesus, there's these two people, they're, they're actually incredibly upset. Maybe it's a bit insensitive. No, no, Jesus is not insensitive anyway. But I mean, they're, they're talking about what's happened and, and Jesus has, has died and, and they're like, what's going on? And Jesus is just like, hey guys, what you talking about? And they're like, are you, what? Have you been under a rock for the last week? Have you not heard these things? And he's like, what things? These things? Ah, it's just, I mean, that's main character stuff, right? Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. So they reply, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. I want you to notice firstly the emotion that's going on in, the, in these two disciples. It says that their faces were downcast. And the word that's used there is an incredibly powerful word for th there was just visible sorrow in, in their faces. It's impossible to hide. And we, I think as Australians, we tend to get very good at kind of veiling what our real emotion is. I'm not very good at that. And uh, Beck will tell you that I'm not very good at that. It's kind of like an open book and it, it frustrates her no end. Um, I think Zelvin had this saying, which was like, notify your face. Uh, so I, I definitely need that uh, some of the time. But these, these guys are at a point where they just, it, it, it's just coming out of them. They can't hide their sorrow. They're downcast. They're sad. They're disappointed. Why is it that they are so full of, of sorrow? And it's because their hopes have been absolutely destroyed. They had placed all their hopes on Jesus. He here comes along this man who was unlike anyone they'd ever seen before, did things that no one has ever done, and they pinned all of their hopes on him, all of their expectations 
about what he was going to do. And then something different happens, and now their hope is completely gone. They are in a desperate state, a desperate state of sorrow. But you know what I find just totally fascinating is that the thing that's making them sad is the empty tomb. And they've come at the empty tomb with a worldly perspective, with their own expectations of what should have happened their own expectations of what God was going to do. And then suddenly God did did this thing and there's this empty tomb, which is meant to be a symbol of, of, of victory and of joy and of hope and of life. And here they're interpreting it as like, we've lost. Everything's ruined. It's ripped, as my daughter would say. And the problem is a matter of perspective. And so often we come to God with just a mess in front of us and we ask, What's going on? Why can't you change this? Why can't you make this better? And and God's like, I'm still doing something good. You need to change your perspective. And sometimes we need to actually align our perspective with what we see in Scripture, not the other way around. Instead of coming with our expectations, we come to, to Scripture and we go, you tell me what this is. You reveal to me what's going on here. You see, they had all of the information at their fingertips to be filled with joy, to know the victory of God, and yet in their worldly interpretation, it made them sad, sorrowful, downcast. I want you to note also their reaction to Jesus' faked ignorance. Are you the only one who hasn't heard about this? Make no mistake, if these events that happened in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago happened today, this stuff would be going absolutely viral on the internet. Everybody would be talking about it. Everybody would be uh, posting about it. You you know, the the hashtag Jesus is dead would probably be going crazy on, you know, Jerusalem Twitter. Um, And then, you know, a few days later, probably neatly followed by the is Jesus dead uh, hashtag. But the significance is that we often underplay the, the historicity of what happened here that this was a, a real event, that, that these things really happened, that this isn't religious opinion. And, and Luke writes both his book, Luke and Acts, not as somebody who is trying to represent an opinion, not as somebody who's giving a philosophical argument, but as somebody who's collecting the facts. He's, he's giving a, a Netflix documentary without the, the you know, bias uh, that Netflix has. I always confuse right and left, so I'm not even going to attempt to to say which one that is. Right, he is assembling the facts and presenting them as something that actually happened. You know, it's not not a sci-fi or or a fanfic. This is the truth about Jesus' literal death and literal resurrection. And those truths, when you actually encounter them, they, they catapult everything else into the background. And that's the story that we get for the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and for the book of Acts is what has this information done to them? Not they've had a religious experience, but they learned something and it changed their life. You know, why is it, welcome, happy new year, 2023, 20, 2023 years since what? Since Jesus, right? Because there was a turning point in the middle of history where something happened, People didn't wake up and go, I think I'm going to play with the rest of history right now and and just change from, you know, 
BC to AD and they're just going to think that it's this something. No, something actually happened. We can put a, put a pin in the timeline and go, this moment was significant. And forever we're going to be counting history as everything that happened before that and everything that happened after that. And you can try and tell me that it's before the common era or in the common era, but we know the year zero is the year that Jesus came. Maybe they miscalculated a little bit. It was probably the year three, but that's okay. The principle still stands. And then 33 years later, something happened. Something happened. That Jesus, who was actually God in flesh, died on a cross, and then three days later, he rose from the dead. And that knowledge, that confession of Jesus, because it was the resurrection which confirmed Jesus as God's Christ, as God's Messiah, the anointed one. And when Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and Jesus says, on this I will build my church on this rock, on this confession, on this knowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, my whole church is going to be built. What he meant was that when you suddenly find out that the Son of God died and rose again, it changes things because that really happened. And the book of Acts tells the story of what the disciples did simply because they found out that pretty important piece of information, not because they were, they were deceived, not because they became some fanatics, but because something happened. And it's the same for you and me. When we become a Christian, when you get the spirit living inside of you, there's this moment of knowledge that's like, there was a before and now there is an after and I'm never going to be the same again. Because Jesus has entered my life and I know that he's alive. I know that he's alive and I know his life is with me and his life fills me and he energizes me and he's present with me through his Holy Spirit. No, none of this is, is philosophical framework or personal belief. It is factual representation of something that happened. And so Jesus is almost finished playing this little game. With, I, I don't mean to be flippant. I'm very reverent towards Scripture. I just find the way that Jesus manages this process unusual and entertaining. Verse uh, 25 Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And even while he is speaking about it, they still don't recognize him. See, Jesus here begins the very first ever Christian expositional, exegetical sermon. And if you look there where it says he explained to them, that is the Greek word exegeo, from the verb from which we get exegesis. So there you go. It's the first Christian exegetical sermon. And um, Jerusalem to Emmaus, we're told, is 11 kilometers, which at a pretty leisurely walking pace is going to take you about two hours. Right. So this is a long sermon. And um, I've got at least an hour and 40 left. So buckle in. No, I'm not going to do that to you. Um, Jesus starts on this uh, expositional sermon and, and he, he begins with Moses and all, how many? All the prophets. And he explained to them what was said in some of the scriptures. No, all of the scriptures concerning himself. And you need to know that this is a formula. 
Moses prophets scriptures, right? Moses prophets writings, because the way that the the Hebrew people um, compile their scriptures is uh, into three parts: the Tanakh, the Nevim, and the Ketuvim, and, the, and together they uh, abbreviate to the uh, Tanakh. Tan, uh, the the Tanakh, the T part stands for Torah, which means law, which is the first five books of the Bible which were written by Moses: Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The second part, the Nevim is the prophets, all of the, the major prophets and the minor prophets. Then the Ketuvim is all of the other writings that happen. So when, when they're using this formula, when Jesus, oh, sorry, when Luke is saying Moses, the prophets and all the scriptures, he's saying everything, all of it. There was not a bit that Jesus left out. He started at the beginning. He started at Genesis. He went right the way through to Malachi and he told them all about himself through the Old Testament scriptures. Wow. This book, Genesis to Revelation, is about Jesus. It is about Jesus. And we op- when we open it, we expect to learn about Jesus. And why is it that later on, I'm not even sure that I'm going to make it all the way through the, the rest of the passage, but later on, once they've recognized him, and he, he just vanishes, right? Disappear. He's not playing by normal rules, Jesus, right? They recognize him and then he's like, he's gone. And then they say to themselves, they ask each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Have you ever had that moment when you're just in the Bible and something about your heart is just burning? You know that there's something going on. God is doing a work in you. Why is that? Well, hopefully it's because Jesus is speaking to you through his word. Because from the very beginning to the very end, all of scripture is about Jesus. And why is it that at that moment when they're literally sitting there in that expositional sermon, walking for two hours, that their hearts are burning inside of them? It's because it's actually the living presence of Jesus in that situation, making his truth known to them that causes their hearts to burn. And let me tell you that this is a scenario that was not available up until that point. Because at this point, Jesus has finally fulfilled what God's mission was for him on earth. And so suddenly, Everything else makes sense, right? The the Jews, they they went to synagogue every single Saturday and they were people of the book. They would open their scriptures and they would go and they would learn and they would memorize and they would know absolutely everything. But now, finally, at this moment, it's like Jesus is saying, look back again, look back again. Think about the cross and look back again. And they look back and they go, it was always Jesus from the beginning to the end. Why is that? It's because Jesus is the living and abiding word of God. Let me just try and unpack that a little bit. And I've never, to my own satisfaction, been able to explain how profound this is. So I'm trusting Holy Spirit to make it known to us tonight. Jesus is the living and abiding word of God. And that has huge consequences for this book here, this text. Because John 1 verse 1 says... Uh, We'll have to go backwards. I'm messing around with your um, words here. Sorry about that, Lou. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was 
was, was with God and the word was God. I'm pretty sure that's the word. He was God, with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and not anything that was made wasn't made without him. In him was the light of life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In the beginning was the Word, right? So the Word is this, this eternally present person of God. It's with God, and it was God, right? So it's, it's actually Trinitarian discussion. It was God. The Word was there with God. Through the Word, God made the world, Okay, so somebody remind me in the story of Genesis, how did God make the world? Open up his toolbox, pull out his hammer. No. God said, let there be light. Light appeared. God's word spoke everything into existence. So what John 1.1 is saying is that that creative agency, that word, that person, of the Trinity, that person of God, created absolutely everything. And you know what else John says in chapter 1, verse 14? The Word became flesh. Right? So before Jesus was Jesus walking around in Galilee, raised in Nazareth, around, you know, Palestine, before that, he was eternally called the Word. And every single time God spoke to someone, that was that second person of the Trinity that we know as the Son, that we know as Jesus. It was Jesus speaking to them. So every time a prophet speaks in the Old Testament, that is Jesus in his pre-incarnate person talking. Right? Is this messing with your mind a little bit? Hebrews 1, verse 1 to 3. I'm pretty sure I had it back there on the, on the slides, and if, if I don't, I sincerely apologize. That Hebrews 1, 1 says, At the past, in many times and in various ways, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. I got that the wrong way around. Sorry. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hands of the majesty in heaven. Right? So can you see that the incarnate Jesus is God speaking to humanity? That the, the incarnation is the loudest thing God ever said to the world. Probably until the Holy Spirit came. Because Jesus is the living word of God. Jesus is the living and abiding word of God. And what does that mean? Because Jesus rose from the dead. It is the living and abiding presence of Jesus that energized the prophets in the Old Testament to speak the word of God to the people. It was the living and abiding physical Jesus in first century Palestine who attracted people to himself, who healed people from their diseases, who forgave people from their sins, who welcomed the outcast and who died on a cross and who rose again three days later to show that he was not just the word of God, he was the anointed Messiah come to save our sins. It was the living and abiding presence of Jesus who enabled the martyrs in the third century to look into heaven and to be filled with joy and peace while lions tore them limb from limb. It was the living and abiding presence of Jesus in the 15th century that encouraged the reformers to stand up against what they knew was not the truth 
and to say, we need to get back to what God says about us. And it is the living and abiding presence of Jesus who is with us tonight in this room. That same Jesus, that same word of God, if we were to simply just open the scriptures and ask him to be made known to us. Oh, can you see the potential that we have when we simply come, we open the Bible and we say, what do you want to do, God? What do you want to do? Because this is more than a text. This is more than a book. This is more than a study session. This is the living word of God and we want him to be made known to us. We need to reset our approach to Scripture. We need to understand that when we open its pages, what we're looking for is to see the living Jesus and to have him made known to us. <laughs> we're, not, we're not a Bible-worshipping church. We're not going to be a Bible-worshipping church. We're going to worship the God of the Bible and we understand that he's present through his word. So how do we reset our approach to Scripture? That's the first thing. Understand that we are coming to encounter the living Jesus. When we open that word, when you open it at home, it's the same thing. How exciting is that? Having trouble getting motivated for your devotional time in the morning, well, just remember that it's the living Jesus you're looking to encounter. By the way, God is gracious. Right? God is gracious. And I used to be able to do you know, an hour-long quiet times when I was studying at Theological College and, and loved that, but I just can't do that anymore because I have a wonderful family. And God is gracious, right? So there's no, there's no expectation or judgment on, on devotional time, but I'm just trying, to, just trying to sow the seed of excitement, all right, that when you do open the Word, what can happen? You can meet the living Jesus. That's the first thing. Understand that we are coming to meet the living Jesus through His Word. Secondly, we want to surrender our own agenda. We're not going to come with an idea of this is what needs to happen. We're going to surrender our perspectives and we're going to say, well, yes, I believe some, some things and I've got some ideas, but God, if you want to show me something different, I'm open to that. I'm open to that. We need to come to God's perspective and God's agenda through Christ and three more things, we must come open. All right, and this is where expectations turn into actually uh, probably unhealthy boundaries or, or boundaries that just shouldn't be there. Because when we come with, with expectations that this is what happens or this is what God does or, or this is how the Bible works or this is how God works, then generally, you know, God honors those expectations, which is unfortunate for us because there is so much more to God. And there is so much more to the living Jesus than the expectations that we place around him. So we need to come open. We need to come open to say, look, whatever's going to happen, whatever you want to do, God, whatever you want to do in my heart, whatever you want to do in this space, we are open to that. Secondly, we must come submitted. Right? We place our lives under the authority of God. And that means that we place our lives under the authority of, of Scripture. So when the Bible gives us a clear moral instruction, we say, okay, you're my authority, God, and I love you enough to be obedient to that. And I also know that you're the one who, who really provides change in my life when it's necessary. We submit our own agendas and our own ideas and our own thoughts to what Scripture has to say. Just like the disciples needed the empty tomb to be changed in their perspective, 
We need God to give us his perspective on what's going on around us. And then thirdly, we must come expectant. God wants to do something. God always wants to do something. And that's why I'm so excited about church for this year. You're allowed to be excited about church. Because when we come, we come to meet the living God. Right? We come to just open ourselves and to be expected and say, God, do what you want to do. Do what you want to do. And I don't want to ever be in a position where I say no to God for something that he wants to do. Right? However scary, however wild, however bizarre it might be, I think that the people who've learned throughout their life to never say no don't regret it when God does something. We need to come expectant. Do you know what could happen if the living Jesus came in power right now? Well, what did he do in the Gospels? What did we see Jesus do? We see him open blind eyes. We see him dispel sickness and disease. We see sinners restored to God. We see demons cast out. We see God's glory manifested as Jesus transforms, transfigured before his disciples. We see the outcast accepted and find somewhere to belong. And we even see the dead raised to life. Do you believe that that could happen in our midst? Do you believe that God can still do those things? Are we expectant that God can do that? Are we expectant that God's going to say something? That God has something to say to you at every moment, at any moment. Can we open ourselves up to that? Because being a person of the book is actually about being a person of Jesus. So can you do that? Can we do that in our evening service and in our morning too, right? This is the flavor that we're trying to sow into over the next season, can we be expectant? It's our openness and our expectancy and our faith that invites him here. I'm going to finish in a moment so the band can, can come up, and I just want to take this moment to, to maybe just uh, open ourselves up to God. And so if you, if you want to come along this journey, if you want to, to say to God what you want, I want to be where you are. I love you and I want to come to you. Do what you want to do. If you want to do that, then I would love us to pray together and I would love us to, to stand and to surrender that to God. So as we uh, are just about to worship, would, would we all stand? Or if you're willing to, to take that step, let's stand together. And you may want to assume a posture of, of surrender to God. And we're just going to pray. God, we come and we just submit before you. We submit our own agendas. We thank you, Lord, that you love us and that you come to us. But now is the time, God, where we want to come to you. Wherever you are, that's where we want to be. Whatever you're doing, that's what we want to do. We surrender our agendas before you, God, 
And we know that you're going to meet them in ways that we necessarily don't expect or understand. God, we surrender our perspectives before you. And we know that, yes, we believe what we believe because we believe it's true. But if you want to show us something different, if you want to invite us into a different understanding, we submit that to you as well, God. We submit our perspectives right now. Lord, we submit our expectations to you. If we have placed a limit on what you can do as we open your word and as we come to be in fellowship with the living Jesus, then would you just remove those expectations? We lay them down before you. And we ask instead for you to replace us, replace it with that fire, that burning in the heart that the disciples had simply as the scriptures were open to them, as the living Jesus was brought out of Genesis to Revelation. We're expecting God. And Lord, we submit our whole lives to you. Whatever you want to do in us, through us, with us, wherever you want us to go, we submit it to you, God. If God's been speaking to you tonight and you feel like there's some business on your heart, then we've got a a prayer uh, team available who will be off to the side if you feel like you need prayer. But I just sense at the moment that there's just an openness in our hearts. And we just want to invite God into that openness, whatever that looks like for you. If God is speaking to you at the moment, um, don't say no. Maybe that means you want to write something down or or you you want to go and speak to someone or or share something that God's asked you to share. Just don't say no to him. Let's worship.